Dr. Cummins, you are a scholar of necromancy, yourself a necromancer, mm-hmm. and someone who includes ancestor work as a not insignificant part of your magical practice. Where are the dead? <laughs> uh, oh, cool. Um, hi, Cooper. It's really nice to see you. Oh, hi. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's, a, that's a great question. Hello everyone and welcome to Witch Hassle. I am your host Cooper Wilhelm and what you just heard was a little snippet of my conversation with Alexander Cummins which is going to make up the vast majority of this episode of the show and it's really a plum of an interview. We talk a lot about his new book, an excellent book of the Art of Magic, which has just started shipping and is a lovely edition of a grimoire from, I believe, 1567. But we also get into some of the nuts and bolts of Al's necromantic practice, because in addition to being an erudite scholar in the history of witchcraft with a PhD in the history of witchcraft from, I believe, the University of Bristol, Dr. Cummins is also a serious and sensitive practitioner of these dark arts, which we call home. And so I am very excited to bring that interview to you because it was just, it was a joy to do and it's just replete with very useful information for practitioners of all levels and interests. But before we get to that, uh, Frank Civilli has some astrological elections for us, so that's very exciting. Here's Frank with some astrological elections, including what to do about the fact that we are in a leap year, and I suppose this leap year is also seeming to last for decades and decades and decades. Here's Frank. Hey everyone, I'm Frank Civilli. I'm an astrologer and a poet based out of Queens, New York. I do tarot and astrological magic and a whole lot more, and I'm here to give you a read on the stars in the weeks ahead. Some housekeeping before I begin, I do Hellenistic and archetypal astrology, I use whole sign houses, and I use the tropical zodiac. And all of my elections today will be from New York, New York, and in Eastern time. So let's take a look at the stars. I want to start out with something I can't do that often, which is a leap day election. I've always been fascinated by the concept of leap days, kind of this strange pocket of time that only opens up every four years. And as I was writing the elections for this week, I got to thinking, how can we lean into this and use it to our advantage? I'm hoping we can find out with a little experiment. The election I'm looking at is for Saturday, February 29th, 2020, at 11.46pm. We have Scorpio Ascendant with Mars exalted in Capricorn in the third house, separating from a conjunction with the south node. But what's most important about this chart is that the skies are dark. All of the planets are below the horizon, and 11.46pm Eastern is the exact moment that the moon in Taurus in the 7th slides below the horizon as well. Mercury is retrograde conjunct the IC in the 5th house, so we have the psychopomp at the very depths of her descent. It's worth noting that we're breaking some rules of quote-unquote good elections here with this one, but I see that as another means of sympathy, of embracing the liminality of this day. Create something that shall remain unspoken, hidden in this day, out of sight of any of the celestial wanderers. 
something deeply internal that will cast reverberations for the next four years until you access it again. Don't write it down, don't document it, just let it live in this moment and see what becomes of it. This might be one for the crossroads, but that's up to you. And for my second election, I want to look at Venus's ingress into Taurus on March 5th, 2020 at 8.33 p.m. Eastern, which is a stark relief after her time in warring Aries. We have Libra Ascendant. Venus is conjunct Uranus in the 8th, allowing us to soak in the evening star from her own domicile. The moon is in Cancer in the 10th, and we also have Mercury still retrograde, but now ingressing into Aquarius in the 5th. This is a welcome change for the messenger who moves from the sign of her exile to the sign of his exaltation. And he sextiled the newly happy Venus as well. This is the first time Venus is returning to her home in Taurus since her time last May when she first encountered Uranus there. So spend some time thinking with that. Note where Uranus is in your chart and consider how things have changed in your life since last spring. How can you lean into the stirrings of revolution that began all those months ago? What parts of the past cast off from the revolution need to be set to rest? What can you kill that has still clung around? Form the next phase of your revolution. Very literally, sow the seeds. And that's all I've got for you today, friends. If any of that resonated with you, notice that. You can find me on Instagram at anti.bishop. Feel free to reach out with questions or conversation. And until next time, be well. Thank you so much to Frank. You can reach out to him with any questions you have at anti.bishop on Instagram. And also, uh, congratulations to Frank. He is going to be giving a talk, it is, it is breaking news, at the Salem Summer Symposium, which is doing a Salem Witchcraft and Folklore Festival August 9th through the 16th. And so Frank is going to be presenting there, as are a number of people who are either friends of this show or just sort of friends of mine which i don't know if there's a distinction worth making there i think al is also going to be giving a talk who is the subject of this next interview so dr alexander cummins is a geomancer and necromancer and scholar of the history of magic and his new book that he did with phil lagarde is an excellent book of the art of magic the magical workings of humphrey gilbert and john davies so it's a, an edition of a grimoire that has a lot of spirit conjuration and also some additional essays from dr cummins from dan harms and there's also an illustration done by sin eater who's a, a great uk visual artist so it's really a, a who's who of magical folks getting involved in that book and Al and I talked for a very long time in his home about not just this, this book, but also his, his magical practice. And he's someone who's been at it for a long time and is very thoughtful and is very active. And so it was really wonderful that he shared so much information uh, about what he gets up to and how someone else might be able to go about that. So it was a lovely chat. And before we get into it, there are two things I want to, to mention. One of them is that we mentioned in passing show stones, which I think are sometimes called shoe stones. And if you're not familiar with these, they're basically just crystal balls that will have been used for crystal scrying, which is interesting because I was thinking this week, there's this video that's sort of circulating around the internet of someone taking a bunch of aluminum foil and compressing it into a very, very dense sphere with hammers and mallets and so on and then polishing it to a mirror shine with aluminum polish. And it might be a useful technique for making a kind of 
inexpensive shoe stone. Because of course, if you need a lot of these things because you're working with different spirits who maybe don't want to share the same stone in some way, it could be worth a try to save yourself a few dollars and also just, you know, avoid the potential moral problems of dealing with the, the precious stones trade right now. So that's that's one. The other thing is that we mentioned in passing a grimoire called the Higromantia. And the Higromantia is a wonderful, interesting grimoire dating back at least as far as the 14th century. And it has a lot of wonderful tables in it about the best times of day for doing different things, which angels rule, which hours of which days of the week, and so on. But the operative detail that is alluded to and then sort of dropped is that there are operations for divination in that book that require a kind of Batman and Robin scenario where you have an older wizened magician working with uh, a boy, like a, a child. And the child is the one who's actually doing the scrying and the, and the older mage is the one who's sort of directing all that. So we sort of raise that possibility and then immediately push it aside. But that is the possibility we were raising. So here's my talk with Dr. Cummins. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. And to bring you back up to speed, remember at the start of the show, we were talking about where exactly are the dead. There's a bunch of places we can talk about. We can talk about where do they go. In which case we're talking about not just heaven or an abstracted spirit world, mm. but a variety of places. Certainly, I think it's useful, especially as an early modernist and a necromancer who develops a lot of their practice out of what goes on during the Protestant Reformation to talk about purgatory or the lack thereof mm -hmm. as a space between, as a, as a, as a, as a third way uh, between <laughs> heaven and hell. Uh, a liminal space, we might say, but also overlaid onto this world in a way that the others aren't and distinguished from fairy, although intersecting with it, which is the other most common third realm, a la Thomas the Rhymer, etc. And the links between the, the, the fairy and the dead are, are ones well worth exploring further. So some of the dead are meant to be in heaven, some of them are meant to be in hell within a, you know, a, a pre-modern Christian cosmology. European ideas. Some of them may be in purgatory until that's kind of abolished. Uh, for not terrible reasons, to be yeah. fair, a lot of the abolition of purgatory where the lonely souls are said to be, for instance, uh, is down to wanting to challenge the notion of indulgence, that there could be a grand protection racket run on, you know, nice deceased grandma you've got here be a shame if she wandered in the lonely places of the earth for all eternity right um and maybe if you you know grease our palms then we can ensure that the right prayers are said over the right masses and that she gets to uh gets into the vip section of the uh, uh, of the of the christian ontology so it's not entirely unreasonable and arguably it it, it goes further than it means to uh, anyway we can talk about the abolition of purgatory there's also the notion that that's just something that the church of england said and that it's you know, it doesn't actually change the reality of where the dead are, right? Which is in lonely places um, around. Uh, we we seek to them in ruins, uh, at crossroads, at places where thieves are hanged, places of violence, places of death, places where the dead are not buried at all, or not buried in consecrated places. So potter's fields, uh, for instance, as a, as a classic example. But I think there's a wider notion that the dead haunt the whole of the earth. And also that their presence is itself not a haunting, 
but is a, a colour to the flavour of the air, we could say. There's a lot of talk about how the dead can be cohered uh, where there are dead folks, right? Uh, so it isn't just about calling up who's buried at which graveyard. It is that the presence of the dead instantiates an aspect of the underworld in a kind of, you know, Grantian perichoresis, in a, in a overlapping of the the underworld and pulling it up into our world. So graveyards become a... a all graveyards are one graveyard uh, to, to some degree, and right. all are suburbs of, of Hades in some way. So it's a good uh, mana card. Yeah, hell yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I tap that. Uh, <laughs> there's capacity to talk about the dead being a kind of ambience and a, a turbulence. Now in Central African and Congolese models especially, there's this idea of Kalunga, mm. which is an ocean of the dead that um, you know my, my teacher often talks about as existing as a, the breadth of a breath away from everything that has lived, that is living, and that will live, and that everything that has died is dying or will die, right? And that this kind of thick soup of the dead is like the force made of um, those who are the spirits that themselves have dissipated into this grand ocean of, of, of the dead that itself is cohered to create new life as well. So we have this grand kind of uh, aerial uh, spiritus mundi compost heap that's like bringing up new life. And while that's a, a Central African model and found in a variety of uh, Afro-diasporic traditions as well, it's not utterly at odds with certain pre-modern European notions of the turbulence of certain spirits moving and crashing and whirling and creating eddies and riptides. And the talk of the turbulency of these spirits isn't just framed as spire, as air, but also as like a kind of aqueous thing that there's a kind of sloshing about. And if we think about like places we've been to that are, that feel haunted as balls, it's frequently not like, oh God, I keep seeing like a white lady or like, you know, the hairy hands. It's it's far more often a sense of the the heaviness of the air, yeah, and then ambience. And so the dead are where there are dead. If that's not too tautological, so we can we can seek for them in other places. We can call them up, and we can go down and visit them as well. I've been harping on a lot about a an article I just finished editing for the anthology that will form part of the proceedings of the International Necromancy Consortium's first conference down in uh, New Orleans in at the end of March. And Amazing. it's our dear friend and colleague Cadmus, uh, who's written a fantastic piece called uh, Every, Necromio, uh, Every Necromantioi is a Catabasis, uh, which really explores this notion from antiquity that when we seek to the dead, the underworld is where the dead are. And, and every calling them up into our world is also to an extent, making parts of our world more like the underworld as yeah. well. And so there's this this meeting below. That was such a lovely feature of that book he put out last year. Has it been only... Good grief. God. Uh, good grief. Uh, true to the earth. Uh, yeah, I mm. feel like I'm 10,000 years old. Um, <laughs> well, thank you for that incredibly thoughtful answer to what was a slightly, um, uh, I don't want to say flippant question, but I was expecting you to say, we don't know, <laughs> and kind of leave it at that, because that's often the answer that I've gotten. But enough about the dead, because they can bury themselves. You have a new book coming out, or it's sort of out already, or bits of it are pre-orderable right now. Yeah, yeah, it's on pre-order, yeah, okay. for sure. Yeah. Yes, I have a, a new book out with uh, my friend and colleague, Phil Legard, and I am very excited about it. It is 
coming out through Scarlet Imprint, Peter and Arkistis have been dear friends of mine for many years. The the UK occult conference circuit is not big, um, and uh, you see a lot of the the same faces, and um, it's uh, it's it's always a, a treat to catch up with them and see what they've been up to, and also to you know finally collaborate uh, on this project that's been a good couple years in the making, mm. uh, mostly in terms of Phil's tireless uh, and indefatigable research and bringing in more sources and evidence to back up what we're talking about. What we're actually talking about is called An Excellent Book of the Art of Magic. It is about a 16th century grimoire. It's the catalogue of operations conducted from February to April of 1567. by two gentlemen of the nascent British Empire, uh, Humphrey Gilbert and John Davies, who are uh, what we used to refer to as explorers or even adventurers uh, that were now like agents of colonisation. Murderers, Uh, right. Right, right, one might say. Um, Categorically commanding, at least Gilbert, a commanding officer, a relation of Sir Walter Raleigh, and definitely in that set. Uh, John Davies, a a navigator um, who, who, who produces a variety of navigation equipment and also has a part of the Northwest Passage, the Davis Strait, named after him. They're uh, colleagues, although it seems more like frenemies of uh, Dr. John Dee, uh, mm. and are operating a good sort of 20 years before he begins his angelical operations. And the book is unique not simply for being a 16th century grimoire, mm. which would already be cool, uh, in my book at least, but because the text that we have is a, uh, of, of, the, of what to do, is accompanied by the scrying record and the dream journal and their magical journal of the operations themselves. Mm. A lot of it comes from dream and spirits turning up and giving them a prayer or a set of activities to do. Mm. And once they do those, they receive further visitations from further spirits that like level them up. Yeah. And so we have a behind-the-scenes uh, account of this grimoire kind of cohering. Like So we know when they say, you know, you should wear black when you're doing this operation. We know why, because a spirit, in, in, in the case of the excellent book, a set of dead magicians uh, like King Solomon, uh, as well as Cornelius Agrippa, uh, Roger Bacon, uh, as well as biblical characters like Job and the evangelists, especially uh, St. Luke, uh, and also Adam, <laughs> like the first magician. Right. Uh, you know, these are not uh, practitioners burdened with an overabundance of humility. Uh, they have they 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 got hoop dreams, coach. They got them bad, and we have the evidence that you know the spirit of Adam turned up and said, you know, you should wear black when you're doing this. You should go and clean apparel. You should be good to the poor, and giving them a variety of instructions and taboos and uh, you know uh, this one weird trick to uh, to conjure spirits more accurately. And they do that, and it works, and they keep leveling themselves up. Uh, so it's we don't have many scrying records that accompany the actual, like handbooks uh, or manuals of of ritual conjuration and and and, and spirit work. Uh, we have more of the the copies of the the texts themselves. Yeah. You know those weren't uncommon to 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 collect, but precisely also partly because the legality of spirit conjuration was questionable over the early modern period. Lots of people didn't write down what they actually did with that stuff. So it's rare that we get that. Mm. And that we get it explicitly from the tutelary shades of deceased occult philosophers and magical practitioners is, I think, especially powerful and worthy of significant study in the wider corpus of grimoire magic and uh, European conjuration.
Amazing. Let's talk for a minute about the the grimoire itself before mm-hmm. we maybe go more into the the let's say the liner notes, mm-hmm. the you know the recipes behind the recipes. Sure. What is the focus of this grimoire? Is it sort of like a hodgepodge, or is it very much geared toward one particular thing? That's a great way of framing it. On the one hand, it has components that suggest that this is for people who are already doing some kind of magic, uh, whether that's just you understand the common sense of you're trying to do magic. Well, of course you're going to need a showstone. Of course, you're going to need a crystal ball or a scrying mirror or something. Yeah, That's a big part of it, is scrying. There are ways in which scrying is employed not just to know things, but to summon spirits. The main thing that spirits are called to do when you call them in the excellent book is to bring you more books. Is to bring you the best book that ever was, is a phrase that's used a fair amount. So whatever that is to you, I guess, uh, depending on uh, what you're after at the time. But mostly it's about doing magic so that you summon spirits who can teach you how to do more and better magic. So it is, it's an awful lot of, I don't want to say bootstrapping, but of building the thing that lets you work out how to build the thing better. They're very much kind of Jodie Foster in, in contact, right? Yeah. They receive the how to build the Stargate, they build the Stargate, stuff comes through it, they build a bigger Stargate, and they keep expanding outwards. So... On the one hand, it's there for people who have already got a magical practice. The instructions for specific materia are often not very specific. So rather than saying, you must use a mixture of frankincense and aloes wood and mastic to um, fumigate your circle, it simply says, you need a great supply of sweet perfumes and powders. So it's assumed you already have this stuff. It also says, you know... There are conjurations in the book that you need to say at particular times, but it also says that you should have a couple of good books to call by. So it's assumed that you already have a bunch of the stuff. So it's almost like a do the usual, right, yeah. at the start. Where it gets particular is a, a set of protocols for how books and uh, magical teachings are channeled, effectively. So that's an appeal to a very specific hierarchy, which is not uncommon. A lot of grimoire magic basically starts with you carrying out and asking to speak to the manager. Yeah. Uh, or at least letting spirits know that the call is being recorded for training purposes, yeah. right? That, you know, you don't actually expect Lucifer, the Lord of Hell and all spirits, to turn up, but you, you, you call unto him yeah. and so that the, the underling spirit, the subordinate spirit, knows that you could. Yeah. I don't think that my dad, the inventor of sin, right. would like to... Right. Okay. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, on the one hand, it's a little bit, I wouldn't say hodgepodgey, but it includes the modularity of the fact that you're already practicing something, probably. Okay. Uh, that you already know that it's common sense that you need at least one showstone and you need some, some prayers. On the other hand, it's, it's very particular that there is a technique for channeling texts. So it's not just a channel text that says, hey, you know what, the spirit told me I have to, like, wear a cape and, um, and have a book full of lots of different colors of, of, of writing and that's it. It's a system for visiting in what feels very much like, uh, and the word is, you know, uh, has been a bit uh, new aged uh, of late, but uh, it, it sounds like a pathworking, basically, a scrying visionary endeavor where you go through a forest, you find a house in the forest, the house has a door with nine seals or keyholes on it. If you project the, the correct sigils that King Solomon also delivers to you in dream, you go through into the house. It, the center of the courtyard of the house is a tree made of crystal that has seven keyholes on it. If you open those seven keyholes, there's a door in the tree. If you go through that door, so again, this like 
pathworking thing of like doors and natural environments and things where they're not supposed to be. There are books inside the Tree of Crystal that you can go and pick up and take back and open up and, and read and receive in some way. Okay. And is it ever sort of made explicit that the reception of this book is... It's not that a spirit, you know, knocks on the door and there's your, your Amazon package mm. with the most the best book that ever was, which I assume is The Sister of the Traveling Pants or something like that. <laughs> but it's more that you have the contents of the book. Or is it, do you have to, like, in the moment of the dream, write it out on an actual slip of paper? It's tricky to say, and it's tricky to say for a number of reasons. One of them is that these scrying records attest to a mixture of different visionary modalities, dream, trance, spirit contact and a myriad of things that are pulling in more than one of those things at any one time. And there aren't clear boundaries made mm. between, I did this when I was waking, I did this when I was asleep. Okay. Because there is a pre-modern cosmology and, and oh, way of approaching the truth of experiences that's very different from our modern categorization of what's awake and what's asleep. I'm not saying that 16th century people didn't know the difference, but I am saying that in a culture and in a magical milieu where nightmares are contagious and not just in terms of their contagious properties but that you could literally share one that it exists in physical space that you could both be looking at the same thing the idea of like discrete individual experience is is kind of thrown out the window a little bit yeah. and this this is still the case when we when we scry together in in circles and and you know that first time you hear the spirit talk back with your friend that you're doing the operation with and they hear the same thing you know, that's a, that moment is is kind of how a lot of pre-modern magicians lived. Yeah, trans-subjective, I think it's called. Okay, yeah, cool. Yeah, 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 exactly. Uh, that sense that, like, dream doesn't mean not real, mm-hmm. in short, and, and doesn't mean only subjectively, personally true, yeah. right? So it's hard to say exactly how they're channeling these texts. Certainly it seems some of them were written down before or during. Some of them seem to have been delivered in dream or dictated in a way that sounds like a slight version of the way Kelly sees the individual pages and the letters that are being shown to him in a book that they then write down for the grand tables of the sets of practices that end up being called Enochian. Yeah. So some of it seems a bit like that. Some of it's seen and then written down later. Some of the books are lessons. And so there's a lot of stuff about sometimes spirits are going to get cute and they're going to deliver you a book. You ask them to bring you a book on how to do a particular kind of magic, and they'll bring you the book that you can see in Spirit Vision, but you can't necessarily read it, uh, because because they might be tricksy like that. In which case, there are specific conjurations in the excellent book for how to get the spirit to come back and to deliver not just the contents of the book, but the understanding of it. Mm. And at that point, that starts to look a lot more like uh, a book on tape in on the astral, or like uh, a set of correspondence courses being taught to you over the... Uh, the, the 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 zoom webinar meeting of 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 the the spirit world yeah right uh, so sometimes these books I think are just lessons on on how to do a thing and the things they're they're exclusively magical things or I mean I know under our understanding of magic is is very different than it was in the early modern period and what is and what is not but is it we're not talking about things like say like where the picatrix might say that like a wizard should know, statecraft and rhetoric and how to command armies like that's not in here it's not explicitly but again because it's a system that is built around spirit contact and facilitating you know your 
version of that what opening that door is yeah and facilitating your ability to receive which spirits are going to turn up for you and teach you what things it's less dogmatic in terms of like here are like 50 spells uh, to do x y and z and a lot more like here is the means by which you learn to fish for yourself mm, okay right? so it's there's, there's there's almost no spells if we want to put it like that, there's almost no procedures that are given of like, if you want it to rain, you need to like draw this sigil and sprinkle it with uh, salt water that we might get in books of supernatural secrets that are appended to a lot of grimoires. Yeah. No, rather it says like, so you want to learn how to make rain. Okay, uh, if you know the rain spirit, then you can just plug his name into this protocol of structures. If you don't, then you're probably going to want to speak to uh, one of the central authority of the, the the senior spirits that the excellent book appeals to, which are uh, explicitly are uh, Azazel, the the fallen angel from Enochic uh, Apocrypha, who teaches all sin sometimes, but at the very least is the author of weapons, armor, and cosmetics uh, as well. Uh, a potent uh, a potent mix there. Oh yeah. As well as the four kings, the four regents, who are mm. the ruling spirits of the cardinal directions: Oriens, Paimon, Amaimon, and Egin. Uh, who have a, a really central role in the traditions of European spirit work referred to as Goetia. They are the means by which spirits are organised by direction that they come in, or that they come from, or that you face, or that you have your back to when you call them. They are also senior organisational principles that we literally orient ourselves with, and that we call quarters by, which is a, a very, very, very old practice yeah. uh, in, in, in the history of ritual magic uh, from at least Mesopotamia onwards. And so they are contained in the excellent book as well. And you can either work with their courts directly, which still involves usually them sending forth a messenger or a sub-king or a, uh, an intermediary or a subordinate spirit, or you can use, again, their authority to channel another particular, sp- a particular spirit that might then teach you how to make it rain, or what have you. So there are a number of approaches, but the practicality of it is a lot more about, here's how you find that thing out, rather than here is the answer to that question. Right. My understanding is that the mode in which you converse with these spirits in this book is a bit more aggressive and mean-spirited. Yeah. Than, than your typical grimoire. So that's a, that's an accurate... How yeah. mean does it get? It gets... Oh, it gets real mean. Uh, I, it, I'd say it's one of the meaner that I've come across. There is a wealth of uh, really nasty ways in which you can be a dick to spirits uh, in this in this grimoire. In general, the, uh, the quote-unquote Solomonic approach, or approaches, I would argue, to spirit work is a little bit antagonistic. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> partly because spirits are small and mercurial they 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 shift and they change and they're vicissitudinous and most of them don't want to be put in a stone or a bottle or a, a spirit house of some sort they have no interest necessarily in helping some random magician yeah right so it's necessary to kind of like nail them down uh, in some ways and sometimes kind of literally uh, in order that you can then see them more clearly they're not just like a flickering in the corner of your eye or you know um, flying about the room or whatever that they're in a fixed place so that you can address them for long enough that they can, we can you can understand each other and then come to an arrangement of some kind. So some of the stricture and binding is just about stability, yeah. the stability of the com- uh, conversation. The excellent book goes a lot further. And again, these are imperialists. These are men who are categorically building the, the nation British Empire, expanding into the so-called new world yeah. um, and putting down 
even the potential for rebellions in Ireland, uh, especially Gilbert, who has a, an incredibly violent and bloodthirsty uh, track record and CV, even for a captain uh, or a, a military man of the time. There's uh, an awful lot of stories about the, the skulls of every man, woman and child in certain Irish villages, towns and cities being used to line the roads. This is not a man known for his cool temper or a caring, understanding attitude. So how, how nasty does it get? There are spirit-torturing techniques in there that I haven't seen anywhere else. Torturing, you say? Yes. So it is not uncommon in Solomonic practice that if a especially recalcitrant spirit is not doing what it's meant to be doing, that you can threaten it. The typical way of threatening it is to take its seal and then threaten to burn it. And that's sometimes accompanied by an excoration, kind of excommunication that you banish the spirit to the depths of hell so it's like an extra exorcism you call it up just to tell it to to go away and then it becomes more difficult for anyone else to summon that spirit and there are all sorts of practices around like tearing its page out of your you know deleting it from your phone basically and ensuring that other people don't work with it either uh, and that you um, you give it no homage. You ghost the ghost. Yeah, exactly. Uh, there are there are plenty of ways of like yeah, uh, n- you know, never call them again, uh, never talk to me and my son again. Uh, <laughs> but the point at which the the torturing comes in, in part, is down to not just threatening to burn the seal, but threatening to expose the spirit to the very elements that it is most contrary to. So if you're working with spirits who are considered fiery. And that doesn't mean like salamanders or fire elementals. It's not a, a category distinction. It's just a expression of the personality of the spirit. Yeah. If you're working with especially fiery spirits, it says that you should take their seal and put it in stinking water, that you should piss on it, and that this will really upset and hurt the spirit. There are also a variety of ways in which you are conjuring by gaslighting. There is a common practice, or not an uncommon practice, which is that when you call up the spirit, you make sure that it can you do a little job interview and that you make sure it can do what it's it, what you need it to do, especially if you're asking it for information. Yeah. Uh, you, it's not uncommon to hide a ring uh, in the, somewhere in the house or a, a small thing that can be easily hidden away from your scryer as well if you have a, a scryer separately. And then you call the spirit up and ask it to show you where, where, you, where you hid the thing, right? So you, you make sure that the spirit knows where things are. And that's most spirits should know how to do that. They, they have knowledge of things that we don't. That's why we work with spirits, because right. they're, they're smarter and more powerful than us. Where the excellent book differs is that it instructs that you do that, but then when the spirit tells you where the ring is, you call the spirit a liar anyway, and you gaslight it on its back foot until you can intimidate it with a full bad cop display to doing what you want it to do. Forgive me for asking what probably sounds like a, like a dumb question, mm. but if one were to call a being specifically because it has powers that a human being lacks in some way, and then was to antagonize it to the point of, I would argue probably, you know, I'm a spirit, now I've got nothing left to lose. So I'm the most dangerous kind of man that a spirit could be. Mm -hmm. Seems like that would go badly for you eventually. Oh yeah, Uh, Gilbert and Davies both end up on separate ships, being uh, drowning off the, uh, Gilbert off the coast of the Azores, um, uh, after the ship is set on fire by pirates and he refuses to leave and reports seem to suggest that he just literally think thought he wouldn't drown uh, he seems to have been screaming at the ship and the fire and the sky as he goes down convinced uh, that he, he, he 
has favors to call in that he clearly didn't. I might understand that there might have been a sea monster sighting right before that scene. Yeah, supposedly, well. right? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, 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 yeah. I, yeah, it wouldn't wouldn't surprise me at all. And yeah, Davies I, also. Yes, Davies also um, dies uh, attacked by pirates. Um, I, th- I can't remember exactly where that is. I'd need to check, but it's in the book. <laughs> okay, good. And their relationship between the two of them, I I think the model, the obvious model here is is John D and 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 Kelly. But I was getting a vague. Because I had no sense of how old Davies was. I was getting a kind of Higromantia vibe. Oh, he's a lot younger. Yeah, he, he like Gilbert refers to him as my boy uh, a bunch of the time. Uh, Gilbert is around 28 when he's doing these experiments in okay. uh, 1567. And it seems Davies is, 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 is a fair bit younger. Uh, there may be a certain amount of like asserting dominance by calling him my boy. Oh, okay. Uh, clearly. Uh, and there may also be a little like... Uh, will they? Won't they? Uh, uh, a little, little, uh, little, little frisson of um, homoeroticism there, in that Gilbert was also, uh, along with being like renownedly vituperative and this like really hot temper, was also possibly um, a, a, a fella um, dealing with uh, a very different set of um, morals and standards about what counted as uh, as good and proper Christian sexual conduct. Mm. I think I came across a. A contemporary of theirs who suggested that the only way to calm down Gilbert was to send him a boy. I think was the phrase mm-hmm. that was. Mm-hmm. It seems a bit dismissive, but um, <laughs> okay. So how did those two meet? What brought those? What brought them together? Because I mean, Gilbert seems like a a fairly fancy, fancy murder man, and Davies is a is a navigator. Which is how fancy are navigators at the time? I think it depends. I think he's pretty. There are there are definitely it depends what sort of engineering they're doing in short, but the civil war also uh, or would come much later. But the, the the wars that were going on throughout Europe certainly meant that otherwise intellectual navigators were having to talk to ships captains and things like that a fair bit. So it seems again um, emergent imperialism is what kind of brings them together, and it's a fascinating parallel to see how the expansion into again the quote unquote new worlds is mirrored by this uh, new epistemological endeavor to call up spirits to find out things you didn't know before. Yeah. Uh, and Frank Clarsen writing uh, one of the few secondary source pieces of material on the excellent book in one of the collections by Claire Fanger, I think it's uh, Invoking Angels, says that they are, on the one hand, they ha- they're, they're, they're bridging. On the one hand, they have a foot forward in the emergent scientific methodology, uh, you do an experiment to find out more things, like calling up a spirit and asking them to explain how gravity works or, or what have you. And one foot in the, quote, old, dirty, medieval magic of the past. Amazing. Uh, which, yeah, which I love, obviously. So this snapshot, this, uh, this set of the footprints of spirits tracked across human time has a quality of illuminating both the emergent colonialist endeavour and its epistemological turn. So like Francis Bacon talking about sending people out and not just colonizing places, but colonizing the knowledge of them, that to be an eyewitness is actually to be compromised by your own subjectivity, and that what you need to do is send your reports back to London for them to interpret it for you. Uh, The the, the centralization of truth-making is occurring at this time as well. Amazing. So we have this land grab, we have this like truth grab, and we have the interaction with spirits on the one hand, uh, so necromantic and so founded in the wisdom of our revered elders. And, you know, 
necromancy never dies, as, as Jake is fond of saying. And on the other hand, this incredibly colonialist endeavor to uh, open up, to rip a hole into this like teeming uh, ecological uh, inspirited landscape and then to enslave various spirits through very forcibly violent techniques. Yeah. So we have both like this astounding stuff around the uh, the self-raising quality of necromancy, of necro- of doing necromancy to talk to necromancers about how to do magic better, right? Yeah. Uh, and also this like horrific uh, colonialism uh, that that underlies an awful lot of the the, the Western gaze and the. Uh, particularly the, the 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 magical Western gaze uh, mm. or the, the Western gaze of magicians, which is still uh, you know very prevalently attempting to force other systems to work by their cosmology, yeah, and by a centralized one, and also by co-opting the language of other modalities of magic and being in the world, ways of seeing, as it's sometimes put. Uh, which is a way of like separating rational and irrational judgment calls on yeah. different uh, forms of, of of being in the world and, and, and making truth, and yeah, and and flatlining those things by describing practices divorced from the actual lived experience of of often oppressed people, uh, as if you are validating yourself by those things. So mm-hmm. there's there's I think it's uh, a deeply important text uh, to be looking at in terms of. Uh, not just the history of colonialism, but also its its uh, its lineage and its uh, its descendants. Yeah, my understanding is this also this this text re- reflects yet another large transition happening at the time, which is that it's in some ways a Protestantization of formerly more Catholic techniques and worldviews. Mm-hmm. Could you could you speak on that for a moment? Sure, yeah. So I rambled earlier about uh, the abolition of purgatory. Yeah. Uh, one of the other things that the Protestant Reformation does is that it gets a lot of magicians streamlining their practice. So they don't, realizing that a lot of the uh, popish, quote, um, practices of the, the old religion of Catholicism are, and Roman Catholicism at that, are unnecessary, that they're superstitious, uh, but that doesn't. So the 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 way that that's normally framed is uh, that you know they they were hyper rationalist or they were hyper fatalist. Hence Calvinism. Hence a variety of other you know dour Presbyterian uh, or, or Puritan ideas. Mm. Uh, it's not entirely the case. There are there are there are quite a few Protestant magicians that just see it as a streamlining. So there are plenty of uh, examples of the working books of Protestant um, cunning folk, for instance, that give. That write out the full operations listed in, say, Heptameron, the very popular grimoire of of, of uh, angel summoning, yeah. uh, based on on planetary archangels, uh, that list out things like, oh, the the pentacle of Solomon must be blessed by a mass, uh, and just scribble that out and write papery in the uh, in the margins, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, and and they're also leaving us, as the excellent book attests, like detailed records that they did it without the Catholic stuff and it worked just fine, thank you very much. Yeah. Does that mean, like, and, and I don't mean that to suggest that the that the religion that underlies the system isn't important yeah. um, or that we can go around hacking up texts however we, we feel like, but just that there is a historical precedent for the adapt the adaption of, of adaptation of texts and of their practices. 
that also boils down a lot of the time to particular things. So there are there are, there's a strength of, of um, different taboos, and it seems, for instance, that a lot of the taboos around, funnily enough, abstinence and sexual chastity are mm. revoked. Fancy that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's less of a problem. The excellent book doesn't list any period of purification that one needs to undergo before doing the work. It's not. It's not as concrete and it's not as discreet. What it does have is plenty of taboos about good conduct in general. Hmm. So rather than more typical Solomonic texts or more Solomonic, te- Solomonic texts that we're more familiar with, where before you summon this angel or this spirit of whatever sort, you need to um, abstain from improper conduct and uh, sex and uh, rich food and alcohol and swearing company for a period of three or seven or nine or 40 days uh, which occurs sometimes. And once you've done that, you can do the operation and then you can go back to whatever it is you're doing. No, the excellent book says instead, if you're going to work with spirits, the implication is that they're going to turn up whenever. And so this isn't just what you do in your spirit room on the weekend as a hobby. The the, the question of when are you not a magician starts to come up. Uh, and the idea then is, no, there are standards of purification, but the purification isn't because I observed seven days uh, of, of, of not eating meat, I'm, I'm therefore now allowed to do this thing. It's very much a, a far less quantitative and more qualitative sense of be good to the poor, give alms when you can, uh, go in clean apparel, wear particular things at particular times. And it's a lot more about like how you live all the time than it is about particular periods of fast or of looking busy uh, or looking pious, right? right. Which... I think feels a little bit like uh, a Protestant take on that kind of stuff for yeah. a given value of Protestant, right? Yeah. That this is about what you're doing all the time, not just about a particular ritual time at which certain things need to be observed that aren't normally observed. Right. So this this has a lot more to say about your everyday conduct, but I guess a, a question that is kind of a brass tacks one and a bit vulgar, but certain grimoires, the Heptameron comes to mind, are a bit of a pain in the ass. Mm-hmm. Like the circles that one must make for the Heptameron. Just multiple circles within circles, depends what time of year it is, etc. Mm-hmm. and so on. Others, the Arbital, for example, incredibly straightforward. In fact, you can do things, you can forget things, as I've discovered, and it still works fine. <laughs> Where would you put this on a spectrum of incredibly huge pain in the ass to, personal conduct aside, I'm in my gym jams, mm-hmm. and I accidentally summon something as a whoopsie, because I was thinking too hard while watching an episode of Jeopardy. <laughs> um, I think there are... Mm, it certainly seems that once you start down this, and it's been my experience as well, that certain spirits will turn up when they want to turn up, and that doesn't mean you're now plagued or haunted. There are ways of being like, not now, I'm, 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 I'm busy, I'm doing the washing up, uh, my hands are all soapy, uh, yeah. uh, kind of thing. But it's relatively straightforward. It requires uh, a couple of showstones, a <laughs> a great plenty, great supply of sweet perfumes and powders, which you know most of us are going to have. I mean, every bedroom I've been in for the last five years. Right. Perfumes, powders, candles. Yep. Yeah, that's all I can think of because anything else would violate a lease. <laughs> yeah. So. Uh, relatively straightforward. The the conjurations themselves that are included in the system are, as Phil has pointed out, notoriously or like very obviously very boilerplate. 
they're very straightforward. They're not terribly long and drawn out, full of legalistic stuff. They're they're pretty straightforward. And and as Phil's pointed out, they're the kind of thing that you can scream if you're a very hot headed guy, uh, forcing spirits to do things. Right? They're not long and complicated and poetic. They're 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 to the damn point. And they're also often just lists of, well, certainly it seems a lot of Gilbert's conduct was to just do vast lists of all the spiritual entities that he was encouraging to curse whatever spirit didn't do what he wanted it to do. And St. Peter curse you, and St. Paul curse you, and St. Margaret curse you, and like just on and on and on, to the point where St. Luke the Evangelist turns up and asks him to stop doing that so much because all of his swearing is upsetting the Lord. Uh... (laughs) Yeah, I adore that. That's <laughs> also just the idea of like, look, it's not. I think you're great. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. just my boss management, right? Um, so this book, and I, I ask this more like a, as a personal question than as to like a potential reader. But you know, you feel free to answer as yourself and as someone who is a guide for others. Is the value of this book more in its ability to teach us about a particular time and a particular worldview is more sort of an artifact or do you think the potential reader of this should really take this out and take it for a spin because we've, we've seen bad things happen to the people who who put this together but they also seemed like bad people and maybe mm. we won't make those mistakes yeah yeah i think there is enough baby good necromantic baby with the colonialists bathwater frankly i think there's enough baby to go around for everyone yeah uh i i I think it's something that we can be using in our own practices i think it's it's also a testament of what that looks like so i don't think it's necessarily only a an artifact that's like here take the snapshot of the first half of 1567 uh later in the year James the Sixth is going to get crowned, you know. Um, yeah. I don't think it's exactly that, but I think it demonstrates, precisely because it has this scrying record with it, it demonstrates not just that, like, what magicians say or how they sound or how they write their grimoires, but also why. Like, where did they get the idea from? Well, yeah. that was from the shade of, of Adam, the first man and first magician, uh, who told them that thing to do, and then they did it. They also scry themselves at points, some of their early scrying is seeing themselves in the spirit world doing magic and seeing themselves doing that almost like in their own future is what like gives them the first idea to do that thing, which they then do and it works successfully and then spirits turn up and, and do them homage and, and give them the, th- the information they need. It's very Bill and Ted. That. The rules. Yeah, it's very Bill and Ted. It's very, they hid the key, knowing that they would come back to find it. Um, oh my god. Yeah, yeah, it gets a little bit timey-wimey. Uh, and that stuff, I think, is, is, is really interesting. And again, putting front and center the idea of learning magic from professionals, albeit ones who are dead now. I mean, the best of the best. Right. Right, exactly. That's certainly a huge part of my practice. So, so personally, I, I love the idea of more formally being able to attest to the use of necromancy, not just to raise the dead, but to cultivate and cohere the very human art of conjuration and, and, and of communion and collaboration and conspiring to breathe together as well as to swear together with spirits. 
Actually, that's something I, I I would like to ask you about. So if we can if we can move off the book for just a moment, sure. um, or maybe the rest of the interview, who knows? We're our own no gods, no masters. Um, so this idea of reaching out to the dead, and particularly dead magicians, to learn how to be a better magician is something you talked about in an earlier book of yours um, about the three kings, mm-hmm. and how useful has your experience been? of talking to, because I believe you talk about a practice in that book, of specifically using the three kings, not just for their own sake, but asking them to help you talk to other dead magicians. How useful are they as that kind of um, person who leads you around the party and says, this is is my friend Al? They're they're very, they can be very introductory. They can be very uh, intermediary in the sense of like the first people you meet at the party that that can show you around. They also, and their star, crucially, for me, feels a lot like an umbrella by which an awful lot of different kinds of magicians can be cohered. So it's not just, like, call up um, the the most important, you know, European magician of the last thousand years and learn from them. It's there... There are there's a there's a there's a lovely United Colors of Benetton Magic University kind of feel to uh, working with the the Magi with the Three Kings that uh, they are an umbrella that holds diversity by their very story is right. about them them being kings from very different regions that journey together and find singleness of heart in the journey uh, to the star and that which lights the the light in the darkness right which can be very abstracted and. Not necessarily just about justifying, uh, you know, Christianity's original superior origin story, right? Right. I mean, at the very least, it was used in its reverse as an anti-colonial narrative at some point. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. That, uh, on the one hand, you have the pre-conquest evangelism that says, you know, look at these Mayan ruins of these amazing cities. Uh, No one uh, who hadn't already heard the good word uh, about white Jesus could possibly have built these. It must have reached here before we did, and your ancestors must have been Christian. And one of them may well have been one of these kings that went and bowed and genuflected and gave gifts and, and fealty to white Jesus. And uh, that narrative is entirely uh, deterred uh, as, as well by the notion of like, well, if we were kings before, we can be kings again. Uh, which again um, plays out in a lot of the slave rebellions, especially in in Mexico, for instance, yeah. and also a, a potent, um, I think, piece of context for the centrality and the adoration of the Magi themselves in Puerto Rico, particularly, mm. which we see here on Epiphany in the the, the parades of Tres Reyes throughout Spanish Harlem, which are amazing if you get to go to. Um, yeah. Thoroughly recommend. In terms of the mechanics, because I feel like you know you you've spoken a lot about the idea of like talking to these kings, making this work, but when you get into the nuts and bolts of saying, I'm going to talk to one of these dead magicians, what is your process usually like? It usually involves a variety of appeals to adjacent or relevant powers to smooth that interaction. So it involves... And this is a key difference between saying it is required to work with this particular god or this particular materia yeah. uh, to do this thing and to say that for me it is useful in my life and practice to be right with these sets of protecting deities and then to check in with these tutelary spirits I already have and to take their advice when I undergo an operation itself, right? So 
that takes a variety of forms. Uh, a lot of it is dream incubation. A lot of it is doing a write and treating it like an email, which, uh, you know, like a quiet phone call that can be put off for a while. The idea of sitting down and instantly getting a response is one that I think we need to critically evaluate a lot in how we talk about magical operations, even just to establish communion, let alone like to get a particular result. I think with with a a lot of this work, there's time that the swirling of the ocean of the dead needs to pass the message on it needs to to get along the grapevine to a certain extent and so i've done a lot of uh work where you know for an hour or so i've i've done various prayers and poured things and marked you know chalked the ground and uh stamped my foot and done all sorts of other things and it's only been you know two or three hours later when i'm tending that thing but i'm not actively sat working that shrine that the spirit turns up yeah so a lot of it looks like dream. A lot of it looks like pilgrimage um, to particular places that those dead magicians uh, left as legacies, uh, museums with their stuff in it, um, yeah. or even named after them sometimes. That's super helpful. It looks like a certain degree of bibliomancy as well, of reading their works, of what they left, of reading works that they themselves read or owned. Maybe not, I mean, obviously ideally literally that you can you have their books right but also reading the same texts they read different copies of the same texts and this again the technique of not just like closing in on looking at at meeting the gaze of uh of, of of a dead magician but of looking in the same direction they looked in of understanding the world in the same terminology that they did whether that's you know abstractly and cosmologically whether that's theologically whether that's like you know humorally speaking which combines like medicine and psychology and uh, how to interact with self and environment and the more and so it looks a lot like history basically yeah so the more of that we do the better we can hear them and mm-hmm. so a lot of it is about you know uh, syringing our ears uh, in various ways ensuring that we're able to hear them already here and and sometimes you know stamping their foot and demanding that you just pay attention to this damn thing. Yeah. So dream, a certain degree of meeting them at relevant places, uh, pilgrimage to places, working with a variety of dirts. Speaking of dirts, you are a big collector Mm -hmm. thereof. When you make use of the dirts of places that are sort of associated with particular beings and such, is that mostly just having it about? Because it's, you know, here's a bit of that place with me in my room right now. Or is it... Are you, because I know um, pilgrims, I think, used to do things like, <coughs> pardon me, um, eat the dirt, mm-hmm. put the dirt in things mm-hmm. and carry it with them as a kind of apotropaic, talismanic yeah. kind of thing. So eulogia are this really fascinating set of tokens, right? Yeah. Um, uh, that's the term that's sometimes used, which is a bit of a euphemism. Yeah, you would go to a holy site, you would find clay from, from a nearby river, you would take that clay to the holy site and a bunch of people there like sat outside, charging a minimum probably, were people with a bunch of stamps that would stamp an image of, you know, the saint that they're out, sat outside of the, the reliquary of onto your clay, bit of clay. So you would then have this like image, you'd have your little postcard, but then it's a sacred item that is both an image that can be used to ward off, you know, that you could wear if it's St. Christopher for Travelers, whatever, that you could also, that was also encouraged to be materia as well. So it's an image, but it's also a, a resource. It's also an ingredient. And so, yeah, they would crumble off bits of the, the corners and put that in water and drink it. 
to to take in the holiness their relics they even go and like touch them to you know second and third hand or order of of relic magic yeah right which itself is a is another fascinating form of necromancy oh yeah i mean i think it's um and we can cut this out if we shouldn't say this but i think jesse is want to say that relics are really just a way of making saints into unquiet dead yes a kind of uh... that's the that's the central uh dynamo that's the central engine and he will be talking about that in march when we are over for the St. Cyprian Symposium, uh, we're speaking at uh, Treadwell's on the 19th. Uh, we're doing a Night of Folk Necromancy, where he's going to talk about exactly that. Um, techniques uh, for the devout and the heretic alike for working the restless dead of the saints. Hell, yes. Um, mm-hmm. I have a question, actually. Um, it just occurred to me. So, for folks at home, we are currently sitting in Dr. Uh, Cummins's bedroom, which is arrayed in such a way that there are various altars, many of which are blocked off from one another by screens, because I assume it's sort of a jets and sharks kind of thing. Assume. I might understand from conversations that we've oh, had. Oh, sure, yeah. Because we... Let's drop the pretense. We know each other. Anyway. Um, <laughs> well, you know, strong uh, boundaries make good neighbors, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean... But um, my question actually has less to do with the boundaries and more to do with the idea that, you know, after I do any kind of ritual activity. I like to give the room a good clean, a good looking over, but I feel like that must be something of a challenge here, right? Because you've, you've got so many roommates, so to speak. <laughs> Do you find it is it is difficult to clean the place out without um, accidentally upsetting or evicting anyone you want to be here? Or... Do they help, in fact, in the same way that having a healthy microflora in your stomach can kind of keep you from getting unwanted pests? Yeah, I think it's a lot more like that. I don't, like, do the equivalent of spiritual bleach as often anymore. Like, I don't return back to a, a, a nice, quiet, empty. I, re- I return to the busyness of the thrumming of uh, a well-tended planetary altar and, you know, uh, geomantic working spaces and things like that. So for me, the the nice music of these spirits doing their things and being, and these powers having spaces to be happy and bring their blessings and lessons to me is, is a useful one. Uh, there are some specific spirits that I, or, or patrons that I work with that do exactly that, amongst other things. Especially working with any traces of, I mean obviously working with spicy boys with spirits that are you know not necessarily aggressive but like run hot shall we say Mm. it's best to do that stuff outside on the whole but if there's you know even bits and pieces of that work that is done inside starting under the auspices of cyprian uh is useful as is ending things under the auspices of justina and being that she you know uh by her her hagiography beats the uh, in, in some parts quite physically and literally beats the ministers of the devil uh, at their own game so to speak mm. she she confounds them with her faith and with the sign of the cross and I've I've said before I, I, I taught a course on working with the four kings the, the four regents of early modern Goetia where I fully basically recommended that if you work with Cyprian you should work with Justina as well and that she can at extreme points where things have got too loud or too cacophonous operate as a kind of magical EMP that just kind of like shuts everything down Mm. or at least shuts down that which is no longer useful Uh, so it's less a case again of like a carpet bombing of like everyone out right the party's over and a lot more about like are you here doing a useful thing so it's a, it's a supervisor coming around as well you don't work here right right exactly um just to 
to make everything as explicit and intense as possible. When you say opening under the auspices of Cyprian and then closing under the auspices of Justina, are we talking about a simplification or are we talking about, you know, you you just bookend the ritual with some offerings and some hellos? Or is it something much more in the sense of, like, you call each of them in at some point to kind of look over everything and mind the works? Yeah, a little of column B, a little bit of column A, depending on the severity of the operation and what's going on. Yeah, often, again, this modularity in ritual as well, yeah. of, of, uh, as, as Jesse is also fond of saying, where does the ritual begin? Does mm-hmm. it begin with the intention to do it? Does it begin with going and gathering the supplies for it the, the, the day afterwards? Does it begin with the thing you read about it that inspired you to look into it? You know, how far back do we go? Yeah. And intention is a, is a good part of that. So the idea that, yes, there's the ritual that's going to have its own opening and middle and ending, but like exact bookending that, exactly doing service to a spirit that may have a direct impact on the thing and may simply be a way of like sharpening you and making sure that you're in your best state to then go and do that thing. Yeah. So that's one of the advantages of having patrons of nigromancy when you're doing nigromancy, yeah. right? Is that they, they can, on a good day, keep your nose clean or help you to keep your own nose clean. And actually, speaking of, of Cyprian and Justina, uh, for just a moment, for the kids at home, who who are those two? <laughs> that that team rocket of of the spirit world. <laughs> uh, so Cyprian and Justina are, are, are dear patrons of mine. Uh, also, part of the reason that we met, I think, is I that think you it might have been you reviewed uh, a an anthology on the the oh. law and practice of Cyprian Cypriana Old World. That is how that happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. And then and then and then we were pals. Cyprian and Justina are saints associated with the city of Antioch. They are saints that emerge around the 4th, 5th century. They are said to be two people on either end of a particular magical scuffle. Justina is said to be an incredibly devout adopter of the Christian faith, which makes her pagan parents a little unhappy for a while. But screw you, mom and dad, I'm running away to join the church. Is, is a thing people did. And one of the unwanted attentions that she attracts cavorting about town with her morals and her good Christian piety is either the pagan sorcerer Cyprian, which itself, Cyprian of Cyprus, is probably a nickname for someone who specializes in love magic, right? Oh. It's probably a version of Dr. Love. So he's sort of like the saint expedite of his day. A little bit. Well, there's, there's, there's definitely a pun going on in his name or like a, a reference to it. And and to be clear, like love magic is not necessarily like the, the wider and broader and deeper history of love magic across human uh, experience is generally pretty grim. It's generally a lot more rohypnol than it is flowers and a movie. Chilling and coercive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Some, some vastly sociopathic stuff around the abnegation and the obliteration of the volition of others. Yeah. So Cyprian is doing that kind of stuff. And either he is hired by someone to put a love whammy on Justina, or he himself falls for her and sends demons to try and uh, seduce her. You know, uh, OK Cupid hadn't been invented yet. And she repels them with the sign of the cross and her great piety in most versions of the story, forces Cyprian to recant his evil ways when he realizes that she's more powerful and she's inspiring to him. There are readings of that story that say that Cyprian simply sees a more powerful form of magic and so decides that he wants in on that. Right. And this begins a long historical and mythologizing tradition of attributing books of magic, especially books of sinister magic, 
to Cyprian, in much the same way that in the English-speaking world we do with Solomon, as we were talking about earlier, the yeah. vast array of things called Solomonic grimoires. Uh, in the Spanish and Portuguese-speaking worlds, and especially the stuff straight out of Iberia, which was a, a, a little-known NWA album, right. they often attribute books to Cyprian's. In fact, the the kind of brand recognition of like the sellotape or the, the, the hoover of the of the day is to call any book of magic a Cyprianio, a book of Cyprian. Right, and I think that's also true in Scandinavia, yeah? Yes, 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 yes. The the, the black books uh, of the Cyprianuses or the Cypriani. So how did you come to be, this is not the right word at all, patronized? <laughs> yeah, yeah, by yeah. Them? How yeah. did you come to oh, be Oh, deeply the, patronized the, occasionally, the, yeah, the, yeah. The, yeah. Not protege either. Uh, my, you know, it's funny, I majored in this language. No, I think patronized is fair. <laughs> I mean, it's technically accurate and also how it feels a lot of the time. <laughs> I don't understand people that find that particular saint in any way cuddly or avuncular. I came to it from a, a pilgrimage of my own to a, a hoodoo store in California that will remain nameless. And going on pilgrimage in general there for my birthday, for visiting friends and exploring the region and wanting to learn more about the folk magics of these here Americas and of their peoples, especially their marginalized and oppressed peoples. And... Uh, asking at the time I was working on my, my PhD in the history of, of magic and the emotions and asking the store owner herself as a, as a, as a teacher of, of, of folk magic you know what she would recommend to help with that and upon asking me you know my family background which is uh, Irish Catholic suggested that I begin working with with Cyprian so it was a, a recommendation from a spiritual worker okay. after a, a consultation and a reading and it was pretty much immediately afterwards that that helped cohere my ancestor practice as well. Really? Yeah, yeah. I had a, I had a lot of little old Irish dead grandmas coming to me and being pleased that I was working with a saint finally. Uh, <laughs> albeit one that is most renowned for uh, some 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 pretty spicy and sinister yeah. uh, 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 grimoires and, 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 and grimoire operations. Yeah, saint's a saint, I guess. But a saint's a saint, yeah. Speaking of grimoires, and I feel like we have been talking for quite some time and I don't want to keep you, um, but uh, what is your favorite grimoire and why is it the grimoire barrel? <laughs> uh, you know, he just gets me, you know. Um, <laughs> I can change him. Um, uh, no, oh gosh, that was sinister. Um, I I love the Grimorian Verum partly because it was introduced to me by one of its other uh, huge advocates, uh, my friend and colleague Jake Stratton Kent. He was sort of introduced somewhat personally to me that I should investigate it, and you know he he put in a good word with his peoples, the 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 good the people of the good book, the other good book. I think it is a system that holds a particular unique position in the Western canon of grimoires. I think it has all sorts of really nice things, or really really helpful engaging things in it. The toolkit is not too bizarre. There are occasional bits and pieces of instruction that are a bit difficult to source these days, but not impossible. It, it concludes uh, substitutions. In theory, one is meant to sacrifice a goat to skin it, to make the parchment, to write the pact, with the spirit that you conjure. So it gives this long, complicated take on how to, you know, how to how to make the knife to butcher the goat, to yeah. skin the goat, to cure the, the skin. And then it says, or you can just use virgin parchment. Like there are substitutions available, right? It is it is a, a, a slightly late synthesis, eighteenth century, of a text that we have record of basically being the same from at least 
the mid-16th century. Okay. So it has a lot of features in it that I think are great and that integrate a more, I want to say spirit-friendly approach, because that sounds like um, I'm increasingly wary of that, having talked about the dangers of being overly zealous and and spirit-tortury and yeah. acting, acting like a big, you know, astral fascist. I think just opening your door and being like, come on in to whoever turns up and having no boundaries is at least as dangerous, if not more so. Right. And so there are ways of working, I would say, not safely, but like in a stabilized fashion. For instance, a lot of the tools have the sigils of the spirits that you're working with that spirit through the tool. So it, it exists as a kind of chair or a, um, a house for the spirit, but it's also your, lit- you know, when you hold that elder wand, you are hand in hand with the spirit Frimos to seal is on it. Like you are working hand in hand. Like that's not only where he lives, but it's it's, it's how you work with him. Yeah. Right. And how you face in the same direction that you achieve that simpatico of uh, of intention and things like that. I like it for that. I think its hierarchy is pretty clear. I think a lot of the other grimoires, especially of um, like more unclean spirits, are subject to deliberate hamstringings by various generations of demonologists attempting to make it harder to work them. The classic example being Vea taking out a reference to the Four Kings that we talked about earlier, again, that like stabilised the practice in the Lemegaton, in the the Book of Goetia, in the Lesky of Solomon. They're an integral part, I think, of the operating structure, and they're removed, and there's only traces of them left. Paimon is given a long text entry, but doesn't exist as part of the 72, but rather as a an order of, of uh, the ruling spirits that you appeal to first to do yeah. this. Again, not safely, but a little more with a little more stability. So Verum has a more comprehensive hierarchy and mapped hierarchy and structure of like how you do the thing. The tools are a lot more clear. It's a lot more of a consistent system. It has means by which spirits literally like have their have their tool and and their kind of house. Like they have a place in your space, which also means that like when that spirit is too loud or too present, you can. Uh, you can wrap it in a series of, you know, linens or other things, ways in which you can treat the tool. Likewise, if the spirit isn't present enough, you can wake it up in various ways with a physical tool for it. And it's just been the system that uh, those those spirits responded to me uh, with an awful lot of, of information and uh, tips and tricks. Love it. Yeah. All right. So the book comes out. It's on pre-order. Mm-hmm. Yes, it is indeed. Yeah. Uh, why don't you go to Scout Imprint. Mm-hmm. Dot. I assume it's a com. Is it an org? Ah, that's not a question. Not They don't have those anymore. We should. Uh, we should yeah. check that. Um, but um, okay. So everyone should read this book or not? Is it not for the faint of heart? Who shouldn't read the book? Let's say that. Oh, uh, gosh. If you don't like fun, uh, no, I don't. Um, you know, there is a thing about not everyone who does magic has to be interested in grimoires, but I am, and I love them, and talking about them, and not all of our magic has to come from old white people, and old white men, and their books, uh, necessarily, but I think this book gives a real testament to the way in which dream, and spirit contact, and developing our own magics is itself attested to in this history. Mm-hmm. We don't have to run away from that in order to to find it for ourselves. There is, I think, a deep tradition of innovation that occurs in most living or unliving magical practice and and, and history of practice that we are both hopefully grounded in the work done before us and from the 
growth of wisdom from those seeds planted in that rich hummus of, of this, this previous work, of this, this body of work that lies decomposing and recomposing around us. Again, the ocean of the dead in the earth and the, and the heavens. Yeah. And also that we are the living people in the cockpit at the moment. Right? We're the ones deciding how we're going to do the next chapters of experimentation. Hopefully that that's... I think of it as a tree, uh, you know, a tree of, of crystal, perhaps, with books inside it. And God, it's such a Macedon kind right. of thing. To do. <laughs> um, but yeah, that we have roots in the in the history and the practice of things before that allow us to pull forth, you know, uh, literal dead magicians to haunt us in good and helpful ways. You know, not knocking down all the books, but just like floating the one that we need to us uh, and opening the page at the right place, all that kind of stuff. Spirit of the library, etc. Uh, and that we are also able to then experiment and to find our own path and our own way and our own reaching towards the sun and our own blossoming and budding. Mm. Um, speaking of finding one's own blossoming and budding, what is your grimoire going to get written? Is that a thing you hope to do at some point? Given, I mean, you are, you've made, you've written many books, but I don't think any of them have been strictly a kind of set of operations that no, this we're, we're yeah, going yeah. To say you came up with sure. Even if you got some help from some friends. <laughs> well, I think it's worth writing a thing when you... Uh, the, the short answer is I'm working on it. Okay. Um, the, the chapter I have in the uh, International Necromancy Consortium's published proceedings that's going to come out later this year is the sneak preview of, of the spine of the book, which is going to be on necromancy and on practical techniques of actually doing it based off historical instances. So a lot of stuff on dream incubation, a lot of stuff on cohering spirits and working with them, again, as safely as one can, given that you are, you know, going into graveyards and, you know, burning eggs and things. Speaking of going to graveyards, my understanding is that the most excellent book, the operations therein, do include actually going to a grave at some point? There is a parallel operation, yes, which is demonstrating that the senior spirit uh, that kind of is the the most senior spirit that one appeals to in order to do it, Azazel, the the scapegoat of Leviticus, seems to have turned up in a bunch of other 15th and 16th and 17th century operations that we just haven't really looked at yet. There are still vast stacks of manuscripts that we just haven't really gone through since, in some cases, the Victorian period, Mm. where a bunch of, like, historians of science went, nope, magic, nope, nope, and just threw them all in a corner. And we haven't gone through all those yet, but as we... Keep, unva- uh, keep uncovering aspects of early modern practice, it seems operations appealing to Azazel, who is called not just the ruler of the dead or the owner of dead men's bodies, but the keeper of the dry bones. So he is the seems to be a very sensible head of working literal necromancy, working with the, the, the materia of the dead. Yeah, so you don't have any practical advice for people who need to get into graveyards after they're closed. Um, or do you? Be careful uh both of secular human authorities and uh the spiritual authorities there you should know how to respectfully enter a place and exit it without uh, unwarranted attention Uh, my advice would be be polite or be invisible and preferably both Mm. 2020 shaping up to be i would say a nasty little year Uh, a lot of daggers coming at everyone all of a sudden very fast. It's still January yeah, right now, right. and yet so much terror has uh, befallen all of it's us. It's been a long year already. As a friendly neighborhood necromancer, any advice for, for keeping uh, for keeping safe and trying to make the best of it in 2020? That's a really great question, Coop. Yeah, I think I think we're all engaged in a magical activity of some sort or another, which 
as Peter of the Scarlets is fond of saying, you know, the the Buddhist corpse meditation is now planet wide. And so we're all on a trip and anyone that's doing any amount of tripping or magical work or divination should be doing regular cleansing of some kind, uh, just because that's good spiritual hygiene, yeah. regardless of, you know, who you're going to call, etc. I think the importance of divination should never be undervalued. I think the importance of knowing when you are able to divine for yourself and when something is simply too close to you and that you are too caught up in what you hope to be the case or what you hope not to be the case, that having a set of trusty friends that you can go to for advice and knowing some professional diviners that Mm. you can officially employ in a very formal capacity to be able to not just work out what's going on, but to help you chart a way around any potential pitfalls or cautions to secure blessings and to remediate situations to our best advantage. We owe it to what's left of, of each other in the world to try and navigate this as sensibly as possible and to leave no tool unused. Indeed. And actually you are, I feel like it almost goes without saying, but let's say it anyway, you are a professional diviner. Yeah. You have those services. What methods do you employ for divination and remediation that might be available to someone who's interested in booking your services? Sure. I read playing cards and tarot, but my main oracle that I consult is European Renaissance Geomancy, which is a Looks a lot like the Yi Ching, but it's like a travel edition. The Yi Ching, as many of you will know, is a system made up of 64 hexagrams. Geomancy, as practiced in the European Renaissance, has only 16 figures, but those are combined in a variety of ways. Uh, they're, they're combined with some of the taxonomies of astrology, particularly lots of astrological symbolism. So if you know your your four elements, your seven planets, and your 12 zodiacal signs, you know most of geomancy. It's ultimately a sortilege system. It works off horary uh, reading, so it reads for the question now. It doesn't do natal charts. Uh, it, it gives you an assessment of what is going on on the ground at the moment and what to do about it, crucially. Like yeah. how to, again, avoid things that it's cautioning you about, how to run towards things that it's saying would be advantageous to you, and how to remediate situations towards the, the best end that they can be. Uh, whether or not that's how to cope with something that you can't change or how to find the strength to change that which you can. But um, your use of geomancy doesn't necessarily stop at offering advice for mediation. You also do remediation as a kind of magical service. Oh, sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's there's, there's a little tension there. Like, lots of uh, diviners are also spiritual workers, uh, myself included. And I find a slight tension in that, which I think is, is good and fine, which is that if you are the one being paid to identify a problem and you're also the person who offers services to help fix that situation, that it is very important that those two are done kind of at arm's length a little bit. Yeah. Like, I can identify the material that you should use to make a spiritual bath to help you be more likely to ace this job interview, and I will. I will pass that information on. And I know that I am able to make a particular bath recipe that can definitely like have more of a chance of securing that job so i can sell you the bath but i can also give you the basic instructions for how you can make it yourself yeah and that's the the that's how i navigate that ethical boundary because i think it is one right because it would be real easy 
to do the dark curse thing of you know, you have a terrible ghost on you and only I can exorcise it. Uh, that will be, you know, nine payments of 999.99 paid to me on the first of each month, right? Ah, uh, that old chestnut. <laughs> We've all been there. Yeah, so trying to avoid that. But yes, I, I do altar work. I do spell work for, for clients once I have divined on whether or not that would be useful and efficacious for them. Because you can also divine on, like, is it worth you doing this or is it worth you just taking the day off and, and working this stuff out for yourself or worth you know, doing the ritual actions that are advised, you know, the abstaining from certain foods for certain periods, wearing certain colours, visiting certain places, avoiding visiting certain places, saying planetary prayers at the beginning of various days, uh, aligning oneself in all sorts of fashions, serving one's dead and, and allowing them to help you do a variety of things. Uh, but yes, I also make uh, talismans, which is um, something I, I very much enjoy doing, and uh, those are also available uh, via private commission. Often, uh, doing a combination of aligning people to planetary or geomantic powers, virtues and spirits, while also helping them cohere the ability to do those things in their own lives more effectively. So again, helping people help themselves on a good day. Amazing. And if someone wants to avail themselves of this, they would go to... Oh, uh, my website, which is uh, inventively my name, uh, com, or one word. And there you can look into my consultation services. I offer coaching as well as readings. You can also book me for a, a talk at your bookstore or a kitchen or a punk gig or whatever. And you can also reach out privately uh, to me at consultantsorcerer at gmail.com, which strangely wasn't taken yet. Um, huh. So I jumped on it uh, and invented a job title. And yeah, you can reach out private to me, uh, privately to me and talk about your talisman needs and wants. And we can go from there. Uh, amazing. Al, thank you so much. This has been a pleasure and a privilege. Oh, thanks, Coop. It's yeah. great to see you. And, uh, it's good to see you, too. It's lovely to talk about this stuff with you. Thank you so much to Dr. Alexander Cummins, a dear friend and a, just a good egg, honestly. If you want to learn more about him or reach out to him, you can go to Grimoires on Tape on Instagram or to his website, alexandercummins.com. And his new book is, it's shipping now. I'm looking forward to getting a copy in the mail. And it's coming from Scarlet Imprint, which is, you know, I was at a party last night with a bunch of magic folk. I don't know if you can hear the late night in my voice. But one of our, our friends who is very well-versed in books in particular, as you know, material objects, was decrying how there is a certain measure of disarray right now in the occult publishing world. Uh, he mentioned, in fact, a, a particular book that I think people had pre-ordered and the date on which it was supposed to be available had come and gone. And now we're about a year and a half later and this book has yet to materialize. You know, that sort of thing, which is, I don't wanna judge these publishers too harshly because publishing is difficult. And when you're working in kind of the niche publishing arena of something like occult publishing or poetry publishing, which is something I, I have slightly, I think, more familiarity with, it's hard because your, your publishing company is, you know, you and one other person maybe or two other people and you don't have investors, you don't have a lot of money up front, materials can be difficult to source, the books can be hard to make, life gets in the way, this isn't your full-time job, so I don't, I don't want to cast aspersions on anyone who makes a go of it and then faces 
uh, obstacles. But I bring this up because Scarlet Imprint, which is printing an excellent book of the art of magic, the magical workings of Humphrey Gilbert and John Davis, is by and large one of the best occult publishers out there in terms of just serious people making good books, being thoughtful with the people who are interested in those books, you know, as they ship pre-orders or actually just any book. I bought a book from them a while back that had been out for maybe a year and a half or two years and and they sent me a ebook of it when they shipped out the physical book so I could have it the second it was sort of supposed to be available to me uh, so I could get working immediately, which honestly is them giving maybe more credit to me than I deserve. But you know, they make good books and they, they seem to really care about people. And the, the folks behind it seem really interesting. And also, they, they have this nice touch where if you, where when they make a new book, they make a, a very limited run of books that are uh, talismanic objects that I think have had magical operations done to them, which is really fascinating. And something that, like, I love as a concept, though I don't know if I'd ever want to buy one just because, you know, my bedroom is haunted enough as it is. And that's where all the books are for the most part, because I live in New York City and there's no space here. Maybe, maybe it's time to move. Or not. I hope I'd miss people. Anyway, this isn't important. This has been Witch Hassle. Thank you so much to Frank. Thank you so much to Al. Please join us for the next episode where uh, I'll have my interview with Francis Young about, among other things, the treatment of magic as a form of treason in early modern England. So that's a very fascinating chat that I had with him yesterday and I am happy to bring to you. And... If you have any questions, by all means, reach out to me. And if you want to support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash witchhasshole. Our theme music was performed by Sebastian Baverstam and recorded by Edward Lee. Good luck with the work ahead. Mm -hmm.